Well, praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh my soul. Ricky unleashed, I like it. Thank you, brother. Thank you very much. Uh, you can open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 23. We will be looking today at the middle section of Deuteronomy, chapters 23 through 25. This week and next, we'll be looking at those sections. Um, these are more of these ancient laws given to God's people to govern their lives as they enter the land of promise. Now, um, if you've just even if you've been here at all, if you've read the text this week, you know we are not Israel. We are not Israel long ago um, in the promised land. How do we relate to these laws? That can be a complicated question, but let me share a few things that help me um, benefit from uh, what I am spending many, many hours thinking about these days. First thing, this is still God's word to us. Okay? No less than that. Um, all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness that the man of God may be Competent, equipped for every good work. Yes, Lord, this is true of Deuteronomy 23. Keep that in mind. S secondly, the New Testament seems clear that we are not required to obey the law of Moses in the same way that the people of Israel were. For instance, remember back in chapter 14, a list of stuff they could not eat. Okay, Most notably, the pig. Don't eat the pig. A whole bunch of things that were unclean for them to eat. Well, if you look to the New Testament, no less than the teaching of Jesus, he's in one of those debates. He says, are you so dull? Don't you see that nothing that enters a man from the outside can make him unclean? And the parenthetical, uh, parenthetical statement that's added is, and Jesus declared all foods to be clean. So things have changed for us. Um, there is a discontinuity between the way they were required to obey the law and what the law does for us. Um, but there is still a, a great continuity between what was asked of God's people then and what we see asked of us as the church in the New Testament. For instance, we're going to find out in today's passage, um, prostitution forbidden, okay? Coming at it from the other side of prostitution in 1 Corinthians 6, prostitution forbidden. There's a continuity. And there is between much of these laws, many of these laws precisely almost, and also between the values that lie behind them. Um, and that's really what we're going to think about today. The laws, they show us the character of the lawgiver. And they show us the kind of people that he's creating so that that character will be reflected to the nations. God's putting these people in the promised land like he's putting them up on a pedestal. So that if anybody wants to know what Yahweh's like, they look at Israel. And that's the same for us. You know, we are that uh, lamp on a lampstand. And so that when people look at us, they see the timeless character of God. 
That's really what I want us to think about primarily when we walk through these laws today. What kind of God makes these kind of laws? Um, because you can learn a lot about lawgivers by the laws that they give. Uh, we have laws at my house. Okay? Uh, at the dinner table. Okay? Chew with your mouth closed. Elbows off the table. One conversation at a time. There's a lot of us at our table. One conversation at a time. And... If you emit certain sounds at the table, you will be banned from the table, okay? There are four males at our table. You emit those kinds of sounds, you're banned from the table. What does this tell you about the lawgiver? It tells us that she's civilized, okay? <laughs> she does not want the males in her house, all four of them, to be savages, okay? You learn this because you look at the laws uh, that the lawgiver gives in my home. So my hope is that today, as we look back, way back in time at these ancient laws given to God's people, we will better know, trust, and love the lawgiver. Okay? That's, that's really what we're after as we wade through this um, stuff. So let's pray and open up the word and see what God has for us in these chapters. Um, Lord, show us who you are so that we can reflect you to the world that's watching us. Give us wisdom. Give us hearts that are quick to obey. Pray now that you would guide and guard my words as we walk through this and use them for your good purposes in each and every life in this room. Have mercy on us, God, in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. All right. Uh, first, there's a few distractions in the beginning of this chapter that I am going to have to deal with. Some of you read the passage before you came, and you are here mostly out of curiosity today. <laughs> yeah. Okay, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I am going to read from the King James Version for just a couple of minutes uh, because it is more delicate than our usual translation and some of the translations you're holding in your lap um, this morning. So let's look at some of these uh, distractions in the early verses of 23. Oh, uh, verse 1 in the King James says, He that is wounded in the stones... Or hath his privy member cut off, shall not enter into the congregation of the Lord. Okay, Distraction number one. Distraction number two down in verse 10. If there be among you any man that is not clean by reason of uncleanness that chanceth him by night, then shall he go abroad out of the camp. He shall not come within the camp, but it shall be when evening cometh on, he shall wash himself with water. And when the sun is down, he shall come into the camp again. Distraction number two, if you're reading your own translation in your lap as I read these, you know why I'm using the King James. Okay, here's the third one in verses 12 through 14. Thou shalt have a place also without the camp, whither thou shalt go forth abroad. Sounds like a vacation, doesn't it? <laughs> it's not. And thou shalt have a paddle upon thy weapon, and it shall be when thou wilt ease thyself abroad, thou shalt dig therewith, and shalt turn back and cover that which cometh from thee. 
For the Lord thy God walketh in the midst of thy camp to deliver thee and to give up thine enemies before thee. Therefore thy, shall thy camp be holy, that he see no unclean thing in thee and turn away from thee. What in the world? <laughs> yeah. All right. Back to the very first of these kind of distracting laws that are here. Uh, the man that's wounded in the stones and has his privy member cut off. Probably, this is not talking about, you know, some kind of horse riding accident or something, okay? It seems that what we're talking about here is probably what we would call um, the act of castration. Okay. Um, and commentators point out that this may well be linked to some who served in the temple of some of the pagan gods. And they performed this act to themselves as part of their readiness to serve that god. So those who had devoted themselves to the false gods in this fashion were not permitted to come into the assembly of the Lord. It is also representative of the, the holiness of God. And the wholeness that he requires of his people as worship. The physical represents the spiritual in many of these laws. Okay? Now in verse um, 10 and 11, there's this uh, uncleanness that chanceth him by night. And you can read what the modern translations have to say about that yourself. But quite possibly what this is referring to is um, not that particular occurrence that some of your translations have in mind. Uh, but it may have to do, rather, with what used to happen, as I'm told, uh, at my grandpa's house in southern Illinois. Um, my, this is really close to Kentucky. So my grandpa was a hillbilly, okay? With apologies to Jeff Doyle. Uh, that's what... <laughs> I, I did, wasn't able to bring a picture of the house with the front porch, but this house, my, my older brother, who's 11 years older than me, was growing up, uh, had no uh, indoor facilities and only one light bulb. Um, that was the kind of the life that they lived there. And come, come nightfall, the boys, um, it, it being dark and only one light bulb, and, and the privy being out back, the boys were disinclined to go out in the dark to the privy. So they would just utilize the back porch. Okay? They would pee off the porch, is what it amounts to. Um, that is probably what's going on in this verse. Um, Peter Krager, in his commentary, says that what this applies to is they were urinating in the camp at night, either involuntarily or else because a man was too lazy to get up and go outside the camp. Okay. And that was, again, representative of... That whole uncleanness thing. Again, reminding us of the, the holiness of the God who walks in the camp. And that is brought out explicitly in the next few verses about having a place without the camp, whither thou shalt go forth abroad. Okay, that's the King James way of saying, dig a latrine outside the camp. Okay, Put your outhouse outside, outside of the camp. Um, this would have obvious health, health ramifications. But again, 
Notice that it's a symbol of the holiness of God who is walking about in the midst of the camp with his people. And he is holy, so the camp must be kept holy. Again, the physical symbolizes the spiritual. Um, Mark Lederbach shared with me um, an illustration of how this functions for us. Um, he says that there was a custom of the Jews to post the Shema. You remember the, the, the verses on their doorposts. Remember that from Deuteronomy 6? Mark studied under a Jewish rabbi, and uh, he told the class one day that it's common in some Jewish homes, the more orthodox ones, to have the Shema posted on every doorframe in the house except one. And that one is, they don't post it on the inside of the bathroom doorpost. Based on this verse, and it is the purpose is um, to teach honor and respect for the Lord. So these kinds of laws are physical reminders, external reminders of an internal spiritual reality. Okay? Of the holiness of God, we'll talk about that in a minute. But that there's no sin allowed in the camp. Okay? Nothing unclean. No sin allowed in the camp is the idea behind this. So every time they did their business, they had to leave the camp. They're reminded of the holiness of the Lord. They're reminded of what he requires of them. Um, it was a reminder and a teaching opportunity to learn about the law giver. And the first thing that we want to see about the law giver that comes from these very verses is that he is holy. When you think about these, these laws, that's the first thing that, that the scriptures teach us about God. That he is very holy. That's what the whole latrine business is about. We shall be holy because he is holy. That's what, in our passage, there's some law, a summary of the laws about leprosy down in verse 24. Take care, in a, or in chapter 24 rather, take care in a case of a leprous disease to be very careful to do according to all that the Levitical priest shall direct you. As I commanded them, you shall be careful to do. In Leviticus, there are two chapters, whole chapters devoted to dealing with these uh, leprosy uh, matters. Remember what the Lord your God did to Miriam on the way as you came out of Egypt. Okay. This, is, this is a three-verse summary of two entire chapters of laws in Leviticus about communicable diseases of the skin. It is a physical reminder of the holiness of God once again. Disease, especially leprosy, often represented sin and, was, and brought about ritual uncleanness where someone would need to leave the camp. This is what, if you remember last week, back in chapter 22, that whole mixing law, right? Don't sow your vineyard, two kinds of seed, lest the whole yield be forfeited. The crop that you have sown and the yield of the vineyard. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear cloth of wool and linen mixed together. Um, again, it's a visual reminder. Every time they planted, every time they plowed, every time they got dressed of the holiness and purity of their God and the holiness and purity that was required of them. So God is seeding their world 
with all of these reminding laws that point out that he is holy. And it's, it's his holiness that lies behind many of these laws, as well as the severity of the penalties. That's why men had to leave the camp for a day, because they used the porch instead of the privy. That's why rebellious sons and adulterous couples were to be stoned to death. That's why in our passage down in chapter 25, a woman has her hand cut off and another man is flogged in chapter 25. The contrast is clear. This God is not like us. His judgments are far more severe than we, we would institute because he is so holy, so very holy. Eugene Peterson says, sometimes I think that all religious sites should be posted with signs reading, Beware of the God. The places and occasions that people gather to attend to God are dangerous. They're glorious places and occasions, true, but they're also dangerous. Danger signs should be conspicuously placed as they are at nuclear power stations. Religion is the death of some people. Because God is holy, and His judgments as a result are severe. And the New Testament says, as a result, we must be holy. As He who has called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. A.W. Tozer said, what I believe about God is the most important thing about me. The idea being... If we believe God is holy, then we will be holy. So do you see God as holy, really holy, law of Moses kind of holy? Tolerates no sin kind of holy. When we read through these laws, we should say, God is holy. This lawgiver is holy. We would also pick up, reading these laws, that this lawgiver, he rules over all of life. Think about what we've touched on last week and in just a few opening verses from this week. This lawgiver rules over latrines, bird's nests, roof construction, families, executions, wardrobes, all things sexual, farming practices, unsolved murders. Add to that from the rest of today's chapters, he rules over slaves and prostitutes, vows, banking practices, divorce and remarriage, honeymoons, loan collecting, corporal punishment, communicable skin diseases, and the handling of private parts. It's there in chapter 25. You can look it up. He gives laws about everything because he is Lord of all of life. There is no part of life that is not to honor this great lawgiver. The New Testament picks it up with these kind of language. Whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, 
giving thanks to God the Father through him. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. See, this is what we mean when we confess the earliest of Christian creeds and we say, Jesus is Lord. We are saying, he is Lord of everything. And so these laws are given to God's people amongst other things, as prompts and reminders that all of life is to honor the lawgiver. And so, in our passage, there are laws about financial practices. Chapter 25, starting verse 13. You shall not have in your bag two kinds of weights, a large and a small. You shall not have in your house two kinds of measures, a large and a small. A full and fair weight you shall have. A full and fair measure you shall have, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. For all who do such things, all who act dishonestly, are an abomination to the Lord your God. Financial practices are legislated. Farming practices are legislated. You shall not muzzle an ox when it is treading out the grain. So farming is regulated. And as we've seen... Even where you dig your latrine is regulated by this great lawgiver because he rules over all. He is Lord of all. I had the chance um, a couple years ago to go to, uh, up to Franklin High School and give a talk to their football team. Interesting audience to give a talk to. Um, the coach at the time was very open to spiritual things. We had a good relationship, and so we... He invited me to come and give a pregame conversation with his football team. And so the question that I started uh, that, that time with is this. Is God interested in football? And immediately, no. You know? Um, and so we went and looked at how God, because, because he cares about all of you and all of your life, yes, he cares about football, and he cares about how you play football. And it's impossible, entirely possible, to honor and dishonor him. So, again, when the question comes up in Israel, in the land, so why do we do this? Why do we have to walk all the way out here to take care of the, this business? What, why are we doing this? Um, why don't we just live life like the neighbors over there? The answer is for the blessing and the glory of our great king. The one true God whom we serve. And these laws are all reminders of his, his lordship of all of life. Now, again, these laws don't shape us in the same way. Okay? Our latrine's right out in the lobby to the left. Okay? We don't have it outside the camp somewhere. We, we don't follow these laws in the same fashion. So, what is it that consecrates all of life for us? How do we do that? And, and I would say we do that primarily by means of prayer and thanksgiving. Um, in the New Testament, again, one of the verses we looked at, whatever you do in word or deed, whatever you do, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. Implied prayer there. Giving thanks to God the Father through him. Ephesians 5, giving thanks always and for everything 
to God the Father. This kind of consecration of all of life under the Lord for us happens primarily through prayer and thanksgiving. That's why Paul says, pray always without ceasing. And so, um, you know, I build these prayers into my life, these little prayers. I have the vitamin prayer. I take a vitamin every day. Open that vitamin bottle, get that vitamin out. It reminds me to pray that God would grant me the strength to serve him today. And my day is consecrated by little acts like that. As long as we're talking about matters like this today, courtesy of Deuteronomy 23, I have the colonoscopy prayer. Okay? I, I, my doctor convinced me that I needed to have a colonoscopy a while back. Yippee, yeehaw! Um, but I went, and they found precancerous nodules um, that they needed to remove. And so, when I sit in a small room in our house and think, um, I thank God for that little word pre. But those were precancers. And I consecrate every area of my life. I endeavor to. Even that area. See, these kinds of rhythms of prayer help me consecrate all of my life to God. Because this Lord, this, this lawgiver, he's Lord of all. It's inescapable when you read the laws of Deuteronomy. And by prayer and thanksgiving, we remember him. We consecrate all of life to him. Are there areas of your life that are not offered to the Lord in prayer? Some may be intentionally not offered. Things that you are watching. Conversations you are having. Things that you are consuming. That you know don't honor God. So you don't pray about those things. Or it may just be because you forget. You run prayerlessly into things because you've done them a hundred times before. Uh, meetings just repeated daily tasks that you have to do to get done. But that's precisely the things that they had laws about in Deuteronomy so that they would be offered to God. That's why they went outside the camp every day outside the camp. Every time they plowed, every time they dressed, every time they sowed seed. This lawgiver, he is Lord of all of life. Are you consecrating all of life to him by prayer and thanksgiving? Right. There's another, uh, one more portrait that the law paints of God in these chapters that I'd like to bring out today. And, that, and this one, I, I just want to make sure we don't miss it because you can miss this if you don't read the law thoughtfully, and that is that he really does love his people, this lawgiver. That's why he gives them these laws. They are genuinely, not just pointers to who God is, but they are genuinely God's protection, his provision for his people. Think about it. Think about that latrine law. Um, 
Sure, it reminds them of the holiness of God, but it's also essential to the health of the community. If you've ever traveled to a country where the sewage runs in the streets, um, it's not a pretty picture health-wise. God is lovingly protecting his people from that. Um, The leprosy law, without this kind of quarantine, for these contagious, communicable skin diseases, they could have been wiped out as a people. It's God's protection for his people. Even the ox law, no muzzling the ox when it treads, is just part of the wise practices God puts into place so the land would be bountiful for them. So the ox will be strong and healthy, and they will reap a great harvest. Many other laws are even more explicit in conveying God's desire to bless and care for his people, especially especially when we are in need. God is attuned to our great need. Look at these examples from our passage today. Here's down in chapter 23, verses 15 and 16. You shall not give up to his master a slave who has escaped from his master to you. He shall dwell with you in your midst, in the place that he shall choose within one of your towns. Wherever it suits him, you shall not wrong him. Chris Wright says about this, this is an astonishing law. It is diametrically opposed to the whole thrust of slave legislation in other ancient Near Eastern law codes. Because God loves his people and he loves the slaves. And the rights of the slave matter more than the profits of the owner. Down in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 23. uh, You shall not charge interest on loans to your brother. Interest on money, interest on food, interest on anything that's lent for interest. You may charge a foreigner interest, but you may not charge your brother interest. That the Lord your God may bless you in all that you undertake in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Um, The focus here um, seems to be um, not on an absolute prohibition of interest because foreigners could be charged it, um, but especially upon their brothers in the land. Um, But again, it's not an absolute ban, and the New Testament doesn't seem to pick up on a ban on interest Um, Jesus even uses interest um, in a uh, non-condemning way in Matthew 25. Um, But verses like Proverbs 28 help us, I think, get at what this kind of legislation is really about. Proverbs 28.8, whoever multiplies his wealth by interest and profit gathers it for him who is generous to the poor. And the idea seems to be that this interest and profit, which are not problematic in and of themselves, are problematic here because they're at the expense of the poor. This man multiplies his wealth rather than in opposition to those who are generous to the poor. And this seems to be what underlies this whole idea of the forbidding of interest. It's a forbidding of getting wealthy at the expense of the poor. Something matters more than the bottom line. In, in verse 20, you pick it up. It is that the Lord your God may bless you. 
better to forego the profit and be blessed by God than to profit at the expense of those in need and forfeit the blessing of God. It's interesting. There's a, there's a kind of loan today. Some of you are familiar. You may have, you may have used it. Uh, there's, they're short-term loans. They're sometimes called payday loans. And they're intended for people who are just caught short before their paycheck comes in. So they go down to some of these establishments and they get a loan just until the next paycheck. Of course, the problem when you're living life on that sharp of an edge is something happens between you and payday and you're not able to pay back. And they can end up in a kind of snowball. And when that happens with these kind of loans, um, those, those desperate people can end up paying up to 500% in a year. 500%. Talking about here in our country. The average, um, the, the way this works typically is if you, if you um, borrow $325, the average payback will be $793. And I know it's complicated. I know that this is matters of bad credit, high risk, all that kind of stuff. But at some point, is it not just preying upon people who are in desperate need? Um, this idea is very important in Deuteronomy and to God. Verse 17 of chapter 24. You shall not pervert the justice due to the sojourner or to the fatherless or take a widow's garment and pledge. But you shall remember... You were a slave in Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you from there. Therefore, I command you to do this. When you reap your harvest in your field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. So they're leaving some in the field, some of the harvest. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. So you're leaving some for the poor, and you're getting blessed by God. Continues, when you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes of your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. You shall remember, you were a slave in the land of Egypt. Therefore, I command you to do this. Once again, something is restraining profit here. The bottom line is not simply maximizing stockholder earnings. That's not all that matters. These things, profit and interest, though not necessarily bad in and of themselves, are here to be tempered by a greater commitment to care for the poor than to maximize our gain. To care for the sojourner and the fatherless and the widow. So, hypothetically, imagine with me that you have a deck and you're looking for some furniture, furniture for your deck. Being a little on the frugal side, Craigslist, okay, that's where you're getting your furniture. So you're looking for a nice set of wicker furniture on Craigslist and you see what looks like a really good deal. You've seen this same set of furniture advertised for almost twice the money. 
and you're pretty sure this is the same furniture. It doesn't have any picture with it, but the way it's described, you think it's the same furniture for about half. It's $350 for the entire set, and it needs to be sold today. Distressed seller. A good thing on Craigslist. So... You call them, you go over there, you look at the furniture. It's exactly what you thought it is. This is an amazing deal. And you talk to the people because you're a friendly guy and you start talking to them. And you find out this family's being evicted uh, from their home due to some medical bills they couldn't pay. And they're having to move out of their home. And they're moving into an apartment. And the money from this sale is going to be crucial to the deposit on, on their home or on their apartment. Okay? So... It's just not right to pay full price for something on Craigslist, is it? And it's just not right. You got a bicker. That's why God made Craigslist. So what do you do? Talk them down. Offer them two fifty. Does your gain trump their need? And I know it's complicated. But I wonder, when you have somebody over a barrel like that, do you really have to push them down under the water? Really? Do you really think that that honors your God? The God who says, leave it in the field for those who have need of it. That I might bless you for your generosity. I wonder if God wouldn't rather that we would pay them the 700 that the furniture's worth. You know, you read these laws, and it becomes clear God cares for his people, especially when they are in need. He's building that into the, to this showcase nation. Look at Israel, see God, and look at how Israel cares for their poor, and you see a God who cares for the poor. When God looks at, or when, the, when people look at you, is that what they see? A people that cares for those in need? Are you generous like that? Or are you too miserly? Our God really loves his people. And this legislation is an expression of his care for them. When you are in need, know that the great king cares for you. It's true. And when you're in need, know that God's people, these days that's the church, are here to put hands and feet on his care for you. That's why we're here. We're here to care for you. And as God's people, we should, we should be demonstrating his care for those in need. As Paul would say, and as Moses indicated here, especially, perhaps not exclusively, but especially for those who are of the household of faith. Right? So there are some amazing opportunities in our church that are hungry for people who have a passionate conviction that this is what God wants them to do. The feed ministry on Sunday morning gives food and the love of Christ to people in our community that have need of that. 
it's, it happens right, it's happening right now. Right? There are people here before the services already this morning. Um, Rob Craig heads up a care team that explicitly cares for people who have financial need, both within our church family and in the community that come for assistance with power bills or rent or groceries or whatever. And he is always scrambling to find people who will make the sacrifice to serve on that team. Sojourners is a new ministry that started up to help refugees in North Raleigh who have come to our nation. They are sojourners in our land. The service station helps people get cars that run who don't have cars that run. And some of the guys in our church that have abilities uh, in those areas donate their time to repair vehicles and make them available to people who are in need. Um, God loves his people. He cares for them, especially when they have these needs. Are you reflecting that? Are we reflecting that? God loves his people. Look, why else, if, if these laws are not a, an in-your-face statement of God's love for his people, why else would he have the happy bride law? Okay. There's no other reason for this law. If a man is recently married, Deuteronomy 24, 5, he must not be sent to war or have any other duty laid on him. For one year he is to be free to stay at home and bring happiness to the wife he has married. The happy bride law. Okay? This is just God's goodness spilling out on his people. He just can't contain himself. And it's instructive. Um, the, the man is given a year free from military and societal obligations to learn how to care for his bride. Um, so we... We learn here that it takes at least a year for a man to figure out how to please his wife. <laughs> now, whether that's the fault of the husband's denseness or the wife's complexity, I'll let you work out at home later. But God wants to, he's just blessing his people. He's protecting them. He's providing for them. He wants to see them happy in his care. And so we, we read these ancient laws and we behold in them this amazing lawgiver who is very holy, rules over all of life, and loves and cares for his people, especially in their time of need. That's the God who stands behind this. The law does one other thing for us. It points us to Christ. You know, the danger of sermon after sermon after sermon on these laws, we have one more next week, and then we'll be, we will have escaped uh, the law of Moses at that point in time, largely, um, is that it can be really depressing because you, you look at this and you think, how could you ever keep all these laws? And you even think about just the principles behind the laws, and I'm, I, I fail all the time at those things. These laws point us to the one who has fulfilled the law. The only one. Uh, in Romans chapter 10, it reads like this, Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. And I, 
I was helped by what John Piper said about that verse. He says, the law was kept perfectly by Christ. And all its penalties against God's sinful people were poured out on Christ. Therefore, the law is now manifestly not the path to righteousness. Christ is. The ultimate goal of the law is that we would look to Christ, not law-keeping, for our righteousness. And that is God's ultimate good provision for us when we were in our greatest need. Let's bow in prayer as the worship team comes to lead us in close.